Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. Featuring influencers, creatives, and thought leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. And I'm Steve LeBeau. Welcome to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. And here we're going to have, well, I used to host the show, co-host the show Lunch with the Governor. So now it's going to be Lunch with the Synapse, folks. We have several foodies here to share our meal. And we have MJ Kinney, who's with Farm Science, or Fair Science. That's correct. Fair as an F-A-R-E. Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything with food is farm to something, so it's farm you know, to farm I to might science. Somehow incorporate that in my slogan in the future. Okay. <laughs> so um, uh, MJ is a scientist, a food scientist, and we have Kimley Curry, who is known to a lot of people, at least visually. At least your food is visually known to them. Hello. Hi. How are you? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> also known as Little Miss Foodie, and we have also Jeremy Eggers, a person I've known for a long time. He's the former. Uh, food critic for the Star Tribune for how many years was that, Jeremy? 22, 22 plus. Wow. How many meals did you have on the on their tab? Oh, let's see. That would probably work out to somewhere around 3,000. No, more than that. More like <laughs> five or 6,000. Five think, or yeah. 6,000. Boy, and they all blend. I miss in. that expense account, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it all blends into one big buffet. Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, we're having food as we sit, uh, thanks to K. Uh, Viet cafe or restaurant in what northeast minneapolis it's in northeast minneapolis on johnson street okay they somehow bestowed upon you all this food do you want to describe what we're eating or would be eating if we weren't on the mics oh sure um they're i brought some egg rolls here from them they're known for their famous egg rolls they've been around i think since like 1980 those are giant egg rolls they are and, and they're also they got this puffy exterior which is Really makes egg rolls wonderful, and most places don't seem to know how to do it, but they, they nailed this one. You're it's right like a that. donut. It's like it a is, long it looks like it, And they're huge. Mm-hmm. And they're also at the state fair, too. The egg roll <laughs> okay. on a stick. I think that's oh, what is that theirs? Yeah, that's oh, wow. theirs. Same family. Okay. And then this one is a grilled pork um, vermicelli rice salad. Okay. Um, and here looks like a hot and spicy chicken and shaken beef, and then a tofu um, grilled or tofu salad, too, noodle salad. Oh, is that kind of a token vegan deal? It is. Okay. <laughs> gluten-free and vegan deal, right? Yes, gluten-free and vegan. Oh, gluten-free. Yeah. Okay. Well, so everyone can eat. Well, I, I, uh, I'll start. Uh, for each of you, I'd like to know, what was the thing that made you a foodie? What turned you into a person that uh, focused on the career that you did focus on? We'll start with MJ, since you don't have anything in your mouth yet. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So I That means the other two of you can eat You for can a while. totally eat. Oh, yeah, yeah, please bite into that egg roll, because if I could, I would. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, there's meat. Yeah. In there. You should probably bite into it like right into the mic, so everyone can hear how crunchy it is. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. We recorded that for Pine uh, Dirty. Yeah, Ooh. it looks amazing. These are good. Um, so I, I chose food science, and how I found food science was really 
just um, kind of a miracle. It was a very deep Google search. I knew that you Google searched your career. <laughs> yeah, I Google searched it absolutely because wow, what am I, I going to knew- be when I grow up? Google. I just knew I needed to be somewhere in the food industry, and I didn't know like what that position looked like. And uh, I knew I was interested in health and wellness. And so the most immediate things that popped into my mind were dietetics, so you know, becoming a registered dietitian. Oh, sure. Maybe working in a school or a hospital setting. Saying, um, uh-uh, don't eat that. Right. And, and then I just thought, and I could have a totally wrong um, interpretation of this career, but I just thought that would really cater to one part of society, a given population. And I really wanted to get in on the ground floor of what food is and where it comes from. And I thought the best way to do that was in a career in food science and really in product development. So to create the food products that make it onto the store shelves was really what captivated me when I found food science. I'm trying to get over the metaphor on the ground floor of food. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, food science can be in so many shapes and forms, and the shape and form that I chose was product development. Mm -hmm. So when I say product development in food, uh, that can be a bit on the innovation side. Hopefully it is. A lot of people who who want a career in science want to be a part of something that's new and changing and progressive. So, so food, I bet they have those over at Cargill and General Mills. Uh. Absolutely. Um, but as, alongside product development, you can also have somebody who's in a quality assurance or a food safety role, which is mm. so critical to... Food tasters. Yeah. I mean, taste... Testers, sensory would be the field in food science. So it's establishing. You could um, be a food sensor. Sensory scientist, but I, I think sensor oh. kind of sounds nice. Yeah, you could <laughs> you could go into a. <laughs> Unless it depends on if you spell it with an S or a C. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, there are so many career options with food science. In making my parents happy, I just said I'm going to choose this thing called food science, um, and you'll like it because it'll give me the most options for a job after college. Wow. And you know, I'll never starve. Well, well <laughs> when I by food, I went to a science fair when my daughter was in grade school, and and one of the other students had a project on chemistry and food, mm-hmm. and they baked different chocolate chip cookies. And this one, you added extra flour, and this one, you took out the sugar, and they had all these experiments on on how you could go wrong so you can recognize your mistakes. But Mm -hmm. it's amazing the the chemical differences that each ingredient makes. Yeah, absolutely. Did you learn about that? Oh, for sure. And relating that to what the consumer sees, um, and also to answer any questions of like, what is considered healthy food, really take a look at a nutrition facts panel, and it can tell you a lot. So Mm. when you look at a nutrition facts panel, there are three macronutrients, and those are uh, fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. And in essentially any product, it's a certain ratio of those macronutrients that create the taste, the texture that you like, as well as the nutritional you know, content of that product. Well, I bet, I bet you're the kind of person you go to a ball game, you're looking at the box scores and all the facts and figures, and then... That's really Oh, there's a nice game going thought. on, but, but look at all these sports. numbers. <laughs> and let's see, let's pick on some of the people that are busy eating here. Um, let's see, uh, Kim... Kim Lee, are yes. you enjoying your Vietnamese food? I'm loving it, actually. It's my <laughs> first meal today. I haven't had much today. Oh, okay, so this is your breakfast. This is my breakfast and lunch for now. Well, good. Now, tell me, how did you become a big foodie? I understand that you have a, an Instagram account that gets like 40,000 followers. You are the uh, influencer, food influencer of Minnesota and maybe, who knows, North Dakota. Yeah, I, I got interested in food. I've, actually, I've always loved food. Even as a kid, my parents nicknamed me... Um, Kim Hale means pig, oh. piggy, because as a little kid, I was always wanting and eating food too. And I'm always like, I guess I'm obsessed with food. Like I can't stop thinking about it, eating it, looking at pictures of food, uh, reading about, I mean, doesn't, it can be anything like, like when you're talking about like your whole job description, food scientist, that is so fascinating to me. 
I, and I love to hear that because for so long I just thought nobody's going to be interested in this field. And oh. then slowly I was like, oh, if only I could figure out a way to help them better understand this field. So I, I really appreciate that you're interested. Oh, I'm, and, I want to talk more about yeah. that. And yeah. this, is, this is how you know someone's <laughs> found the right job. I think too. you just converted someone to be a scientist. I know. I'm so, I'm so happy. <laughs> so then... And, and, and so you always liked it, and, and then what caught on? What made you big? Um, I discovered Instagram in 2013 when I saw pictures of food, people posting <laughs> food, and I go, oh my goodness, I want to do that, just for fun, just for fun, because it's something I, it's like an outlet for me. And so I just started taking pictures of food, posting it, and never knew it would go anywhere. So What, what made it hit big? Um, I think it hit big when, is it 2014 maybe, Fire Lake reached out to me. And they were the first one to invite me to go to their restaurant in, in exchange for taking pictures and posting it and talking about it. If I, you know, they would offer me food, comp food. Mm. We'll post for food. We'll post mm. for food. Oh, Gosh. I like that. What a, You're really good with What slogans. a career path right to the restaurant door. And Jeremy, how did you become a food critic? Were you just, because you, people don't always know, you have a PhD in philosophy, which doesn't qualify you for anything. It doesn't. Well, when I was 19... I decided to uh, hitchhike around the world, or actually I went part of the way in a VW camper, the way a lot of people did in those days. And uh, what I discovered is um, in places like Turkey where we didn't speak a word of the language and hardly anybody spoke any English, the one connecting point for making a contact with the local community and the culture was the local restaurant. You'd walk into a cafe and smile, and they'd smile, and there'd be a bunch of pots, and they would lift the lid off the pot, and you'd look <laughs> at it and nod your head, and they'd nod their heads. And it was like the entry point into another world. And so when I got back to uh, Minnesota, I decided I want to keep doing that, and I couldn't afford to keep traveling like that. So I discovered that going to little ethnic restaurants was a way of sort of recreating that experience and it's still true to this day. The one, you know, the, one of the best places to get entry into the Somali community is to go into a Somali restaurant or the, um, well, uh, I guess there are a few Hmong, the Hmong restaurants come and go. But it's, again, you go into the restaurant, you order something, you can get into a conversation. And it's, for me, it's more the, the anthropology, the, the exploring of other cultures that attracted me to it. So it's the entree to a culture. Yeah. And that's especially true. As I say, it's still very true in the Twin Cities. Mm. Well, you know, I think it's it's kind of vice versa, too, because for a lot of the immigrant groups, like, you know, they, in, uh, at first, they, the railroad recruited a lot of Chinese people to come and work on the railroad back in the, the, the 19th century, before, before the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Uh, and then they'd work on the railroad, and then you'd be done with that section so there they are in the middle of nowhere, so they would start a Chinese restaurant. That's why they're in a lot of little small towns. And so then, just to continue that story, uh, in 1882, the, no more Chinese could come in. So then the railroad people said, hey, let's get the Japanese. They don't, they're they different, and no one will know. And so then you started getting a lot of Japanese immigrants, and then they did the same thing. So that's how we got Japanese restaurants. It's kind of, And that kind of goes on. A lot of new people come in. What do they have is their food to share. It's kind of a big circle of life, circle of food. It is. Uh, and I'm I'm still doing it, like, I don't know how many years after I started. You know, I now have this website called globaltwincities.com where I seek out cultural events in all the different communities that make up the Twin Cities, and especially food events when I can find them. Hmm. Uh, Do you go to the Festival of Nations at the food court? 
I haven't gone to that one recently. It's um, I know it's an old tradition, and um, it's like a starter place yeah. if you don't know where to go. Get a lot of samples. We're talking here about food and and eating food. It smells so good. I haven't had a bite yet. Uh, uh, how does it taste, uh, Kim? I think it's really good. So, any comments? Is it spicy? Is it non-spicy? Oh, it's not spicy yet. I've only had the grilled pork vermicelli salad, but I'm going to work on going to the. I think this is the shaken beef. I don't know what the shaken beef is yet, so. Okay. Try that. We'll work our way through as we uh, continue through the program. And MJ, did you find oh, something? I understand. I did find something. I'm so happy. There's um, <laughs> there's like at this bottom at the bottom of this noodle bowl, which is like, I'm assuming like rice noodles. There, uh, there's firm tofu on top. And you know, I've really had a hard time finding tofu that I can really like. Um, really? It's it's. I mean, when you take tofu home, it's like, how do you prepare this? Does it is it supposed to taste so bland? So this is very flavorful. And then at the bottom are all the veggies. So it's like, <laughs> it's it's like a little treat. Oh, I'm glad. Uh, I yeah, didn't yeah. see that too right away. Was, yeah, there's some bean sprouts and lettuce in there. So no, I I totally found something, and um, which is hard for me as someone who's gluten free and trying to eat mainly a plant based diet. Gluten free. When did you discover that? Uh, that was ten years ago, maybe a little longer. It was before it was popular. <laughs> it was before <laughs> there were really the- any options out there on the grocery store shelves. Um, and so when gluten-free happened to me, it was just an understanding that uh, all the things that I relied upon and that I really enjoyed eating were out of the equation. So that included things like bread and cereal and pizza. So and, no yeah. more. No, Just no more. Yeah. But I mean, now when I eat gluten-free bread, I'm so grateful. <laughs> like, and, 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 you know, there's a, an individual here in the Twin Cities who does gluten-free vegan donuts. That was the first time in my life I've had a gluten-free glazed and vegan donut. Like, mm. it makes people cry because when you've been there for 10 years and you're like, I just can no longer eat this, and you know you still crave those foods if you're being real with yourself, mm-hmm. it means a lot to have that option available. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So so good for you. And, and um you're gluten-free because of health reasons. I mean, you'll have a reaction if you eat yeah, gluten. Yeah, basically every unattractive thing. Like, you don't want to be near me after <laughs> I eat gluten. <laughs> but but the vegan part, that's optional. That That is optional. And the reason why, uh, and I don't identify with veganism, I think that there is a lot to veganism that is admirable and respectable. Um, but that word over time, and maybe it's because whenever anybody enters the market and they they say something that's different. It's viewed as radical, but it turns a lot of people off. And I don't want plant-based nutrition to turn anybody off. Plant-based nutrition. Yes. So when I say plant-based, I mean a mainly plant-based diet. So it could incorporate some animal byproducts. And I'm actually not a vegan individual. I consume a lot of eggs and I wish I had another option available to me. Fortunately, there are companies in this world that are working on that, like, um, well, formerly Hampton Creek, but now just uh, so they have a, a product called Scrambled, which I'm waiting to hit grocery store shelves here in the Twin Cities that I can buy. But essentially, they've created um, a liquid egg that you could buy in a carton, to my understanding, and it cooks just like an omelet, like mm, real wow. eggs. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've heard that. There's Because there's some like restaurants that serve vegan, you know, that are vegan restaurants. I've read that they've mimicked that. Oh, to make Did you say it's called Just? It's called Just, yeah. Mm. Yep, Just interesting. J-U-S-T. I think mm. they got into a little bit of trouble with Jaden Smith's Just Water, which is... <laughs> oh! <laughs> yeah, but um, the whole concept and philosophy behind Just is, is something that I share and resonate with because um, once you understand the capability of plants, 
it's almost a greater sin for me to not abide by a plant-based diet because I see mm. everything that they could accomplish. Well, you know, I, I, I like to dig into the, the, well, you dig into molecules and you go into atoms and all those things. And But if you dig into the DNA, I understand that uh, plants share some DNA with us. I mean, we're, we're all from the same original life form as far as I can uh, as far as I can tell, and I've looked into it really <laughs> deeply. But um, so I, I got, I used to be a, a vegetarian on the ba- basis of it was a sin to kill animals, but plants are okay. And now I think it's a sin to kill plants too. So yeah. I kind of, you know, what are you going to do? You may as well, if you're a sinner, may as well sin broadly. And yeah. so, um, I hear you. but don't you, don't you have a, you're a scientist, don't you? Uh, what do you think about the DNA in plants that we share? You know, I can't speak too much strength on the DNA of plants and how it relates to human DNA. But something interesting about plants is when you try to understand how plants can deliver on a nutritional story that's equivalent to or better than animal-based products, you start to realize that plants actually feed the animals that you eat. So the animals deem this as nutrition that's worthy for their bodies, that's effective for their bodies. Um, And when it comes down to the building blocks of what a protein is, whether it's a plant-based protein or an animal-based protein, you're talking about a diversity of amino acids. Hmm. There are plants out there that deliver on the same amino acid profile as animal-based products. Hmm. Now, I've talked to a physician friend who says it's it's okay. You can still get those amino acids, but you really have to work at it to get the, the, the broad uh, amount of uh, nutrition and protein and, and things that you get from animals to try to get all that from a plant-based. I may have agreed with her uh, maybe a few years ago, but that is changing and so quickly. And I well, can. In fact, he told me this a few yeah. years ago. Maybe it's obsolete. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, when people buy a protein bar, and myself included, before I became, you know, in this industry and was getting the hands on experience, how do they get 20 grams of plant based protein to fit into a bar? How is that even possible? If I were to try to make this at home, do I grind up a bunch of peas and, you know, compact it into a mold? Right. Um, and the reason why that is possible today is because. There is a true level of innovation in the process that makes those plant proteins taste as good as they are and have the nutritional profile they do. So that's possible due to like pea protein isolates or uh, isolates that are derived and concentrates that are derived from any plant-based protein source. So fava bean, for instance, chickpea is really popular. And essentially what you do is you take this ingredient from farms, you create it into a homogenous material, and then in manufacturing, you isolate out those macronutrients you were previously talking about. Hmm. So if a, if a, you know, a yellow field pea, for instance, has like a 65 to 75% starch content, which is carbohydrates, and you know, a 25 or 20 to 25% protein content, very little fat, then how do we separate out those macronutrients so that we can have more protein per serving? And oh, per it, serving on a weight basis. It, it sounds like um, there's also not, not only a science part to food, but also the artistic side to food, both, yep. both the art of how you manufacture those things so that it tastes good. And then more importantly, I think to Kim, how, how it looks when you can photograph it. That's true. So do you, uh, are there things, uh, has there been a food so ugly you would not photograph it? I'll, I'll take pictures of it, but I might ne- necessarily post it. Okay, you have some standards, artistic standards. I do, I kind of do. Because if you're going to promote a restaurant, you kind of want the food to stand out too, mm-hmm. besides mm. being really good, but it should somewhat look good too. I mean, it doesn't have to, but if for, for me it does. Okay, we're going to take a break now and photograph this food before it disappears. We're on the <laughs> Synapse Think Tank of the Air with uh, 
MJ Kinney, food scientist, Kim Lee Curry, food uh, photographer, photographer, and Jeremy Eggers, a food lover from way back. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back with our uh, food break here. We're back to the uh, eating food right on our middle of our podcast. Steve LeBeau here talking with a bunch of foodies. We have uh, MJ Kinney from Fair Science, Kim Lee Curry, also known as Lil Miss Foodie, and Jeremy Eggers. I don't know what your nickname is. Uh, Frank, Igor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he'll go by anything. Just, yeah. just give him the food. So... It uh, Talking about the value of food, there's a cultural element, and it's also the way people get together and share food. I mean, that's the whole idea of, uh, you mentioned the, the meaning of company is with bread, and bread is, you know, broadened out to mean food. So your companions, you always want to share food. That's kind of the highlight of good etiquette or good hospitality. Uh, it's the way people get together in, in foreign countries. In Japan, what they do is they have... Um, little plastic figurines of the food so you can see what it's going to look like. You can't eat it, but it looks so good. Otherwise, uh, how do you go around finding what, what what food is that you like, Jeremy, when you see something that you've never seen before? Order it and try it. I mean, often by now, you know, between Yelp and Instagram and uh, the restaurant's websites, you can, you know, you look at the gallery, you get a pretty good idea of what you're going to get before you get there. Um, but... Um, for me, it's really more interesting to try something where I don't know exactly what to expect or what it's going to look like. Would you rather not know what's in it? Mm, I think for the most part, I'd rather know what's in it. Or <laughs> or at least I'd rather you lie to me if certain things are in it. You know, Because that can make a difference. Does that happen to you, Kim? Uh, yeah, I'd like to know what's all what's in the food, too. Because on my Instagram, I always describe what the food, you know, like what's in the food so people know if like, there's like, a certain allergy or something I don't like. or um. Otherwise, for me, when I research food, I just, like what Jeremy says, I just go in and just order sometimes. You know, I look to see what people have too, but I like to just go in blindly if I can too and try something out. I was at a party once by a fellow uh, from Thailand who was in, in the theater world, and he surprised everybody with his dinner, and so the food had like a... Uh, Frog legs in it, and there were chicken, uh, chicken feet, and uh, uh, all all those you know tripe things like that. And I've seen people just get sick looking at them, not even eating it. So there's a lot of food that's in your head before it even gets to your to your tongue. Where was this event? Well, this was at a guy's house who was a, a theater director. Mm-hmm. So he just. Uh, that was his sense of humor, expressing, uh, let's, let's see how these people react to this odd food. Right. And how so, cool. Well, that's how they go. It's a food waste story. Well, it's, um, as soon as people realized what was happening, they got very picky. Oh, <laughs> very sure picky. Did. I mean, Did anybody if they eat any of the actual products? Well, I tried to eat a chicken foot, but, you know, it's kind of hard. I mean, I don't. There's a texture to that, too, because you're not used to it. So then you're like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, well, I think every culture has something. That other cultures find odd, and then the, the the native people love it. You just gotta have this, and then they push it for you, and it's like, oh, well, wait a second, wait a second. But have you traveled a lot, uh, Kim? Have you seen other countries? And or not maybe... as much. No, I've just stayed in the states more. And I've seen lots of restaurants. Lots of restaurants. 
Um, I do like to try different foods, though. Only few things I one of the few things I'm not a huge fan of are like mushrooms. Breaks my heart. <laughs> but I will. That's a food-based plant. It is, but I mean, I'll eat vegetarian or plant-based burgers food. Yeah, you know, I know it's mixed in, mm-hmm. but if I don't. I guess if I can't see it, if it's not, if it's not like, I guess maybe when I say mushrooms, I'm thinking raw, like mushrooms in a can. Yeah. That kind of grosses me out. It's like kind of slimy to me and it's kind of mm-hmm. weird. Otherwise, the only mushroom I really like are like truffles. Interesting. So she likes the expensive kind of mushrooms. Right. Well, then you have a good, <laughs> good taste. Yeah. Jeremy, is there anything you won't eat? Uh, Kidneys, liver. About every five years, somebody tries to convince me that you've just never had liver done right before. You know, and, and so I get conned into it, and I order liver, and then yeah, no, this is what I hated about it the last time. So now, to me, liver—I I agree with you on liver, but it's kind of on a continuum with escargot because I think escargot—that's like one big liver. No, it's 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 <laughs> chewy, and plus there's usually a lot of garlic with it. And okay. No, I like escargot. I, mean, I even like tripe, but. Liver somehow have liver and kidneys have kind of a strong mm. flavor that mm. I just don't like. What about you, MJ? You you liver you've already cut out a lot of things. <laughs> I like kidney uh, beans. <laughs> kidney beans. There you go. Uh, you know, I I have cut out a lot of food products, and it's really interesting. Uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking about things like food bringing people together. When you try to establish a new diet that's right for you, whether it's mm. for health or nutritional reasons or just out of you know philosophical reasons, you can create a divide uh, between people. Um, so I try never to approach uh, anyone's diet with a level of judgment. I don't think it's mm. fair to judge somebody by what they eat. Um, but when you're really close to the subject matter, like you're a food scientist, you're aware than most of the population um, of what it takes to create that food product. So do you decide to do something about it that's going to be in a direction that's progressive or stay the same or, you know, I don't know. Kind of like meat, like meat yeah. products now, not just meat, but what is it like beyond meat? Yeah. So I eat a lot of plant-based meat products, which mm. would be, uh, I mean. Quote marks on yeah. the meat. Well, I say, so beyond meat's really what like got me thinking about meat in a whole different way because I, I picked up a, a product and um, at this time they had these chicken strips that were available in the produce section, they no longer are able to make that product. I think they're filling a large demand in their frozen department, but um, this this product, I was like beyond meat. And so I was thinking, what actually is meat? And then uh, how can you make meat better, as in go beyond what traditional meat is? And uh, so much of food science is understanding what you're talking about, I would say maybe with any industry. So we have terminology and we have definitions for things. Uh, there are standards of identity for the food that we eat, um, and, and rightfully so. But when you're looking at meat, is it that it contains a certain amount of protein per serving? Is that what the consumer thinks meat is? And uh, does it have to come from an animal in the traditional or more realistically factory farming sense, or oh, could it be the test tube, grown? Yeah. Test tube meat. So with test tube meat, I, I want to make sure that the consumer understands that a lot of product development happens initially in a lab environment. And and then also, what is a lab and what is a kitchen? There are a few things that separate them. Oh, I never thought of that one. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I... Because I experiment in my kitchen. I experiment in my kitchen, and my kitchen is really set up so that as an independent consultant for uh, the field of food science and specifically with plant proteins, that I can do a lot of my work from home. 
So maybe I have some equipment that's out of the ordinary for a standard kitchen, but <laughs> I can look it's still considered my kitchen the before it's considered a lab. Yeah, Bunsen sounds burners. awesome, actually. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not that fancy at no. all. Like, <laughs> now, do you cook? Uh, I am a pretty lazy cook. I, I meal prep. So I, I buy things pretty much prepared and I mix them together. <laughs> so what I mean by that is a lot of produce, I love that it comes washed and ready in a bag, ready to go. Um, I eat a lot of produce in comparison to uh, anything else that would be like plant-based or, I mean, excuse me, like animal-based. Um, I eat a lot of eggs still and I would like to cut back on that just mm. if I could uh, support a plant-based protein as an alternative. And I eat a lot of Beyond Meat products. So primarily they're chicken strips, which are in the frozen section. Uh, they're beef crumbles. And then they're hamburger patties, which you can find right next to uh, your regular meat products in your mm. Whole Foods or your produce section as well. Well, Kim, are these fake meats photogenic? Is the real stuff? You can make them photogenic. Yeah. They, they, they look pretty similar to the real deal, right. actually. Like the, like the strips you're talking about, they look really good. Yeah, so much of what Kim does is actually so important to food scientists because if you're developing a food product, um, you're trying to reduce that barrier between you and the consumer who's buying your product. And that barrier will be reduced when you can make it look pretty. Look pretty uh, and taste good, yeah, too. Yeah, and taste good. <laughs> I mean, th- that's right? important, too. And because, good for you. And if you can convert some people that, you know, there's some people who will not eat it because they're like, well, it's fake meat, so why don't you just eat real meats? Like that whole, you know, yeah. conversation. And then, and then me, I'm like, but what is meat? And then they're like, well... <laughs> And when you try to put a technical definition around it, it starts getting hard. Um, but if meat for you is a way to get protein into your body that tastes similar to what the meat was that you were raised on, there's no reason why that can't be derived from plants if it's actually delivering on that. And it's well, healthier too. Well, to go back to the cultural sense, I mean, a lot of foods are what you inherited from your parents. And so uh, to have a steak or a hamburger or whatever, it's not so much hey, it's time for protein. It's like, well, let's have a steak to celebrate someone just had a victory or or let's go out for hamburgers because it's fun. Everybody likes those except for the vegans and they can have a, I, <laughs> a soy, have a soy say, burger. I love hamburgers oh, and I miss steak. I really do. I mean, There's some fake say, ones out yeah. there now. Yeah, the, uh, oh, which ones are you? Uh, what's about? that? Uh, brother and sister. St- oh, so uh, they're a Bivers uh, Butcher yeah, yes. that are here. Oh. Yeah, actually they're- <laughs> Their ribeye is really good. Yeah. Their ribeye is really good. Their cheese um, mm-hmm. is really good too. Yeah. I actually like, I mean, I really like them. A lot of people really like their products. I mm-hmm. have, haven't actually um, been into their store yet. I know that they don't have any gluten-free options available yet. I oh, they don't? They, yeah. Oh. So to make their product uh, what it is, they I think they rely on vital wheat gluten um, hmm. for for their um, meat analogs, as we would call them. But when I say the word analog, I know that could be a, a scary science term. It really just means to make something as like opposed to digital. another. Yeah, to make something like the traditional version. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeremy, did you ever go to one of those restaurants that was serving these uh, pseudo meats and things and, and, and review them? Yeah, now I'm trying to remember where it was. Maybe in Toronto, um, there was a... Uh, oh, actually, until recently, the Evergreen on uh, Nicollet, which I think closed very recently... They had a big selection of mock meats, including some that really were pretty sophisticated. Mm. They'd have mock uh, barbecue pork with little slivers of red and white and what looked fatty and what looked – and those were were really good. I mean, they they didn't really fool anybody in terms of actually thinking this was beef or chicken, Mm -hmm. but they were respectably close. And I don't know. I think people sometimes think of this as being really sort of high-tech chemistry stuff. 
back in the 80s when I was a food writer for the Detroit Free Press. Uh, <laughs> I, our, uh, our kitchen writer and I got together. Well, she did most of the work, actually. But, but we made um, veal scallopini out of gluten, and it was a really simple process. You take a mm. bunch of flour, you kind of rinse it in water, and eventually all the starch washes away, and you're left with gluten. I guess you couldn't eat mm. this, uh, MJ, but it was— um, You took the starch. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and— uh, we uh, breaded it, fried it up like schnitzel, and brought it to the features editor, who was fooled by it. He was really kind of annoyed afterwards, <laughs> but oh, he I couldn't tell the difference between that yeah. and uh, veal scallopini. So, and it's it's not like it mm-hmm. involves you know super high tech. Uh, right. Chemistry or anything. It was pretty simple. Yeah, hmm. I think right. it's hard to make really like good vegan meat and food too to taste good. It's, it's like more work into it than regular food. You know what I mean? To get yeah. creative, you have to be creative. I feel like you have to be more creative with it to get people to eat it too. I I do agree with you to an extent because when I got into this industry, I thought the same thing, and I actually wasn't interested in really creating any kind of a vegan analog. Um, but then I was thinking, if I was raised on recipes. Like my mother cooked when I was growing up and I've, I was raised on recipes or had an instruction on how to, just like how she taught me how to prepare chicken, how to prepare a vegan meat. Maybe it wouldn't be hard at that point. And a lot of these things can be taught and learned if you have an open mind. But as Jeremy said, it really doesn't have to be that difficult. Hmm. But what about mock duck? Is that made out of gluten? Um, I think it, it is. I think it can be. Because I really like mock duck. I mean, you're not saying, well, gee, I wish I could have the real duck because it's kind of like its own thing. Well, the other, it's either, the other main form of mock meat, I think, is like um, made from soybeans or seitan or... Oh, true, you, the other option. Little can, yeah. yeah the, uh, mock, in fact, mock duck, um, now mock duck, I guess, is gluten. But, yeah, I think that one but is gluten. Some of the stuff you find in cans is actually made from... Uh, a soy product. I'll, yeah. I'll defer to you on that, but that was yeah. my impression. Yeah, yeah. soy, soy protein What's the scientific? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So this is where you get into isolates and, and concentrates in the plant protein space. So you have a, a soybean product that has been isolated to have a 90% protein content yield. So let's say for every 100 grams of this dry product, you have 90 grams of protein. Uh, when you look at chicken or meat on the same level on a weight basis, which is the true standard, um, you know, maybe for uh, like 100 grams of uh, chicken meat, you have 20 to 30 grams of protein. So this is how plants, I mean, not theoretically, literally have more protein than animal-based products. Hmm. Well, M- MJ, okay. I'm wondering, um, uh, you know, if, if a musician goes to see the opera, they're not simply listening and engaged like everyone else because they're kind of secondary judging, you know, all the other things that's going on. They can tell if they hit the wrong note or, or, or the tempo is wrong. When you're eating, do you ever get so engulfed? You just say, oh, this is so wonderful. And because a lot of people that say, oh, it's so wonderful, they're not giving a, the least amount of thought to the nutrition or to the, mm-hmm. the scientific composition. Did, how, how split apart is your brain? Can you can you really <laughs> enjoy food? I'm well? really glad I'm answering this question to <laughs> my family. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it it's a, a battle for me to find options in the grocery store and in a restaurant environment. And for that reason, I take it upon myself to create the products that I eat. Um, and I wish more in, people were interested, and maybe they actually are, but it's just hard to find and know that demographic exists, are interested in eating like myself. But the standards that I adopt um, as a food scientist, um, and I would say as a food scientist just because I'm aware of the nutritional guidelines that are in place and why they're in place, I have a low-sugar, gluten-free, plant-based diet. Uh, so finding options is as slim as you said. 
But when I enjoy something and I, it's able to hit on all those marks and it still tastes good, and I, I would say I'm, a, I'm pretty picky on what tastes good in my mind. I'll have an open mind, but there are bars out there that I've returned because I'm mm. so disappointed that they could even be sold on grocery shelves. Have you ever thought about that when you look at any product on the yes. store and you're like, how did this make it past all these people? <laughs> and they do so well, too, in sales. Yeah. I know, like some bars, bars, because they can be, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I only eat them on the run or as a snack, but I'm kind of picky with bars, too. Yeah. Because some, um, like for me, even as much as I love eating meat and everything, I like to eat raw and vegan, or at least vegan mm-hmm. for some weird reason when I eat bars. Maybe it's like the healthier it's like, like a balance out. I mean, some sort of balance. Go to one extreme if you go to the other extreme afterwards. Yeah. Have, have, has any of you ever fasted? Yeah. Yeah. So what's that like to uh, to love food but then avoid it? It's hard. Um, so when I <laughs> fast, what usually happens is um, it's a result of my environment. So if I'm traveling for work and I cannot find any options, mm. I could spend a lot of time being angry, angry, <laughs> oh. or I could say, "This so, is me fasting." So that's kind yeah. of a, a forced fast. It's a forced fast, but it's it actually works out really well. Um, I have to say, by having uh, some limitations, more than some limitations on what I eat, uh, the inability to find options can create a lot of anxiety, which is kind of, it's a, it's a silly problem in a way, or at least it sounds like it on the surface. But before you can leave the house, if you're wondering, oh gosh, you know, I'm going to be hungry this afternoon and this evening. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to find it? It is. You just you don't want to accept the standard that you're gonna in a way feel like you're starving. That's, but that's why it's like good yeah. to research before. I like anywhere yeah. I go or to, whether I travel, I research. So I go, okay, there's options in case I don't want this. I have this. Oh my gosh! So it's so it's, it's like so it's like in the cool. old uh, ancestral days when you out went out, you had to hunt in order to eat. You have to hunt a restaurant or hunt a. <laughs> I feel uh, like if I were a protein Kim, bar. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like if I were Kim, I would never even search because I you eat so so many like such a diversity of food. It doesn't seem like you have any real limitations. So um, except based on great taste and great looks, <laughs> I made her sound like I made her sound so shallow. I'm no, just no, 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 no. On that. Like, no, no, because I'm looking at your tofu. Honestly, like mm-hmm. right here. It's not like necessarily the prettiest because, you know, it's kind of brown and mm-hmm. everything, but it's still it's good. Square. Yeah. It's square, but I know I love it though. Yeah. I mean, I know it's good, but I don't know. Like when I take pictures of food, I would not want to take a picture of like this tofu bowl in like a dark setting because then people are like, what is that? You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't even look like it could be anything. Well, arguably you wouldn't want to take a picture in any dark setting, right? <sighs> Definitely. But some people do. Okay. And that's okay. But like for me, I'm more about good lighting. Yeah. Mm. Um, I want to ask you about uh, food pictures because um, understanding the appeal and how important that is to the consumer and to an Instagram feed. um, What about ugly food and ugly food being food that would otherwise be a byproduct or a waste product, but able to be marketed in a way that consumers can still eat it, still delivers nutrition. It just doesn't look as nice. That's a true. Barnana's, I think, is the name of the brand. Not the poster child of uh, beautiful food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't really post it. I would put my stories okay. or and, and, and write about it, you know, my stories, but not for a permanent post. Because mm-hmm. people might a, be turned off by it, honestly. They might look at it and go, oh, that doesn't look too good, even though it could be like the best tasting mm-hmm. thing they've had in a while. It has a good personality, but uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. we're going to take another break here uh, and uh, try some different samples of the Vietnamese food that uh, Kim Lee Curry brought to us from the Key Viet restaurant in Northeast Minneapolis. We'll be right back after this. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment.
And we're back for our final segment here on uh, Synapse Think Tank of the Air. Meal of the Air is more like it, uh, eating some delicious Vietnamese food with our foodie guests, MJ Kinney, Kim Lee Curry, and Jeremy Eggers. Now, the cooking, I, I was, you know, once again, I'd like this prehistory topic, and it kind of amazed me to think that uh, fire was invented like a million years ago, before before Homo sapiens, it was a couple ladders, you know, a couple notches up the ladder of uh, you know human evolution. And what they're saying is that because they could cook food with that fire, it had actually accelerated the development of our brain because you could ingest more calories. And they had, I saw a documentary where the woman said, "Well, see this bag of carrots. How long would it take you to eat those if you ate them raw?" And then so she's eating them for like a couple hours. But if you cook them up, you could eat them in like 20 minutes. So there's a certain efficiency that came with food. Mm-hmm. So cooking is part of uh, what makes us human. Do you do you cook? Are you to what extent are you human, Jerry? Jeremy? About 50 percent. <laughs> um, my wife does almost all the cooking. I I cook when she's out of town, and then it's, what, what do you what do you like to cook? Well, these days it's really really basic. I'll doctor up some ramen, you know. Oh. Uh, but. Uh, okay, back when the days omelets, you cooked, uh, when you did cook. Oh, stir fries mostly, um, uh, sort of basically Chinese stir fries. Um, I yeah. do stir fries too. I do plant based stir fries. <laughs> no, why so, did I like, not guess that? Um, it was um, actually Trader Joe's has a great product. It's a soy chorizo. And, um, oh, yeah, I've had that. Yeah, have you? It's pretty it's, good. It's fantastic. Yeah. So there was a vegan potluck over the weekend, this past weekend, that I went to, and it was really cool. I guess this is an event they hold um, once a year, and so many people came out, and there were, like, over 50-plus side dishes that people brought, just vegan products, right? And very creative ones, too. Um, one of the ones I really enjoyed was, um, like, a spinach paneer, but instead of the paneer cubes, it was baked tofu, which... I always thought it was a great idea, but I'm too lazy to make myself sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do the soy chorizo with corn and um, some green onions or anything else that adds like that texture and flavor. And then I just dump it on top of a bed of lettuce, and it's very flavorful and very easy. So that, the extent of my cooking is reheating the soy chorizo. <laughs> okay, you do warming. You don't. I do warming. You yeah, don't I cook. Do warming. Yeah. So Kim. Yeah, I I mainly eat out. Honestly, if if, if there's any cooking. It's heating up the food mm-hmm. these these days. But you do d- some cooking. I do. Not as much, though. Honestly, I don't cook that much. But when mm. I do, I'll spend probably a good three to four hours in the kitchen because I, lo- I love, actually, I love cooking. I love prepping and I love making food, but I just don't have time these days. Mm. Otherwise, if I can, I would cook more often. Mm. Do you enjoy your leftovers cold? I do. I do. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Like, I'll eat cold <laughs> spaghetti. Mm-hmm. Yep, because it's easy for me to take stuff out of the fridge, and maybe like there's a lazy part of me sometimes, like okay, it takes forever to cook. Sometimes you know or to reheat yeah. the food, I'm like I can't wait. So I'm like I'll just take it out of the fridge and just start eating. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, how do you feel? You about turned that? your head like oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, pizza, especially cold pizza. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. pizza's great. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, I had Thai uh, leftovers this. Uh, before I came over, before I knew what a spread we were going to be having, I had some Thai <laughs> And those, those really have to be heated up, too. Uh, no, that's true. Flavor. Like certain foods, I suppose, but like soups, you can't, unless it's a cold soup. Oh, I could tell you a good example. Whenever there's coconut cream in anything, because when that oh. gets cold, oh, yeah. it solidifies. So yes, unless you like right. icy little chunks of coconut, mm. which maybe someone out there does. That's I mean, true. That's the one thing I have to. Well, I, I eat Thanksgiving yeah. dinner in order to have leftovers. 
Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I like to cook it and always cook a little extra. And then, um, yeah, warming it up. I think that's when I bought my microwave to be able to warm up a plate full of all those things. And you're right, the the, the gravy turns into like a thick jello, and mm-hmm. so it needs to be heated up in order to <laughs> to spread around to the potatoes and the <laughs> yeah. dressing and all those things. Yeah, I just think there's something really unique about when you when you get food out and you have leftovers in the fridge and it's like this little treat to yourself. Like, you're so glad you just <laughs> oh, saved a is. little bit. And I then, agree. And then it tastes so good when it's even cold. It, and it like could, yeah, yeah. If you know, I mean, it's really good if it's cold to me. Mm-hmm. That's like a true test of good food. Mm-hmm. If it's cold. Like for me, I'll be like, sometimes I have like a midnight snack. I'm like, okay, what do I have? Wings. I'm yeah. like, I'll eat wings cold easily. Well, mm-hmm. chicken that's famous for being good cold. That's true. Not steak cold though. Actually, steak I've done it cold. It's not as good as chicken, but I mean, mm-hmm. I'll still eat it cold if I have to. Mm. Well, I I, I tend to uh, have to warm up a lot of things. But uh, some things are better the second day anyway, like pizza or I mean uh, spaghetti. If you've made spaghetti, it kind of s- somehow marinates better That's the true. next over the next day or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more flavorful. Yeah, I think uh, it also has something to do with I, I don't know. Like, I make food. I mean, I meal prep every Sunday, and it's sitting in my fridge cold <laughs> all the time. <laughs> but it's not the same feeling, and I think it's because somebody else prepared it for me. Maybe it's that I appreciate it a little bit more. Um, and that, that it's that it's ready for you. It's ready for me. I didn't have to think about it, and mm. uh, it's, yeah, it's one less, a lot of less, few fewer decisions that I have to make in in preparing it. But it reminds me of like when I was a kid, how I rely on my mom to like make a lot of my food for me because it just tasted better when she did it. Like her omelets are always going to be my omelets, no matter how hard I try, and I have tried. Um, You've turned into your mother's omelet. Yeah, my mom. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I I aspire to make my mom's omelet. Oh, you're never as yeah, good. Never as good. No. Now. She's had a lot of practice. <laughs> and uh, same for, for things like there was a part of my life when um, I had to eat liver and I really didn't enjoy it, but mm. it was for purposes of my thyroid. And that's something that if I tried to, and I did try to make it myself, did not taste good and I wouldn't finish it. But if my mom made it, it was very different. Mm. So food alongside like all the science in order for it to be effective in one's life, there's like this comfort food nostalgia connected to it. Um and then there's this ability to compartmentalize the food because maybe, especially as it pertains to animal welfare, you don't have to think about it as much when mm. somebody's making it for you. Well, animal welfare, thats that brings up the whole ethical part of, of what you eat. And uh, I assume that's why a lot of people are vegetarians now or vegan, just to not hurt plants and something about saving the world. What's, what's the latest uh, ethical argument, Jeremy? Well, I think it's shifted a little bit away from do animals have a right to live – to do animals have a right not to suffer? And that's really focused attention on the CAFOs, the, the um, factory farms where um, animals are treated pretty miserably. I mean, you can probably find a ag industry spokesperson will come on and defend what they do. <laughs> they help, but, they're happy but, to be in that But it thing. is pretty miserable, yeah. Um, so animal suffering, uh, and then what part of the argument, too, is is just the use of the earth and the, its resources, right? Well, yeah, I mean, there are, I think, uh, we, yeah, there's the issue of how farm labor is treated, which is also pretty miserable. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who process uh, uh, meat, and then and the big issue, and then there's also the environmental issues, that it's really destructive to the planet, that mm. uh, meat production accounts for a big chunk of... CO2 production, uh, mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. I understand it. 
You may know more about this than I do. Um, Yeah, I read this fantastic book recently called Clean Meat. It's by Paul Shapiro. And he really talks about this in a way that's so open-minded and knowledgeable. It's really the download knowledge drop of the landscape of meat. So it's going back to what is meat and looking at all the options that are available. So you have your traditional meat that's maybe in no way farmed or raised in a traditional fashion in today's you know world, uh, can't, concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs, factory farming being behind that. CAFO. CAFO. But you, know, you have your traditional animal-based meats. You have your plant-based meats. Um, you have meat analogs, which are a hybrid of plant-based and uh, traditional animal meat. And then you have this really? new field that, um, you know, they've been working on for some time. Hopefully they're going to have some real products out commercially here soon. But clean meat is when you're able to match animal-based products, uh, you know, molecules and proteins, everything on a nutritional level. It's going to taste like animal meat, but it's going to be grown in a controlled environment, which starts in a lab, but eventually, like anything that goes commercial, would be manufactured in a manufacturing facility like a lot of other Food is products. it the DNA from a meat, or is it just mm-hmm. okay? That's what I was wondering. That's so yeah, it's, they take a sample and grow it. They clone that's it, right. clone that's it, and right. grow yeah. it. Mm-hmm. It's taking the tissue, the tissue from uh, an animal, which could be through a biopsy or a swab, like um, cells that are on your skin or in your hair or in feathers. I can't well, remember the name of the guy who did it, but there was a very highly publicized tasting a couple of years ago of the first sort of open tasting of this kind of test tube meat and. It cost, I think they figured out, it worked out to about $250,000 for a hamburger. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, really? $300,000, actually. They nailed, they nailed the, the red part of the meat, but what was missing, I guess, was the fat or a simulation of the fat, which is what, and fat's what makes food taste good. Right. They need yeah. to marbleize that so uh, fake meat. That they're still working on, I think. Yeah. yeah. And what you mentioned is so interesting because what if you could control how much fat is in that product, which you can. Um, you can control how much fat, <laughs> how much protein. You can create... Hybrids of animals. Let's say you want chicken and duck together. You know, <laughs> surf and turf. What if you want <laughs> turkey and duck and have like the real turducken, right? Like, and it's grown <laughs> in in a controlled environment that causes none of the negative effects that we know of traditional animal meat, and it's going to taste the same and deliver the same nutrition. Now, what they were producing was mm-hmm. hamburger, which is you yep. know sort of finely ground. Can they produce, you know, chunks of muscle too, or is yeah. That- Absolutely, they can. So, um, yeah, they did a ground animal meat uh, product, and I don't know all the science that's wrapped up in this. Um, The Good Food Institute is a nonprofit organization that is doing a tremendous job at communicating the science and research on this topic. Um, But essentially, you you have cells um, derived from an animal. They're grown in a controlled environment, which could include some physiologic components like exercise, which make the muscle as <laughs> wow. tough as you know well, I, we I, need it to be. I have to ask here. I mean, if, if Jeremy, if you're saying that the argument against uh, eating uh, animals that suffer, what about eating meat that never has a chance to have any fun at all? I mean, it's there in this test tube its whole life. I think that's kind of a, that's a deprivation. Well, there is no connection to a brain. It's see, a that's a, that's another reason. That it's well. So would that be considered a, a vegetarian meat still, even though they use tissues? You know, like, like, yeah. Um, I'm curious about how people would perceive that as like. Can you say that's actually vegetarian or vegan, or is it still considered like real meat? Right. Um, so this is this is uncharted territory, and we're gonna have to make the rules as we go. Um, but what I believe to be true is, first of all, there isn't a standard of identity for or a standard or definition recognized by the FDA for vegan. 
which in my opinion is a, is a problem because if you really are out to do the most good and not involve any animals in the process, you should know that your product is definitely vegan. But um, if it is derived from an animal and it requires a biopsy, it depends on, I mean, I guess how extreme or where on that spectrum you lie as far as a vegan. What about that very first part of DNA that they got? That's from the animal, right, originally? Mm-hmm. That's from the animal originally. So That's what I'm wondering, yeah. Uh, it might matter to some people whether the animal had to be killed in order to harvest that cluster of cells yeah. or whether they were just... Took it off an elbow. Well, they took it off while they're still the, blazing. Yeah, so... Well, I mean, it's like those uh, crab claws down in Florida where they they can harvest a claw and uh, <laughs> stone crabs. They can harvest a claw and it'll grow back. <laughs> oh, and my the, goodness. I did not know about that. Yeah. Well, but then they got greedy and discovered... If they harvested both claws at the same time, they'd make twice the money. But, of oh course, goodness. the poor crab was defenseless without any claws. So. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've the claws claws. I've that story later. Well, a video you should check out on YouTube is uh, just type in Ian the chicken, and this is by the team at Just. Um, but, you know, Ian is a chicken, and he is walking around happily in a yard uh, while they're eating chicken nuggets that are derived from a tissue sample of Ian the mm. chicken. Yeah. So you hmm. don't have to kill an animal in order to extract. Oh, so Ian lives. Yeah, yeah, Ian lives. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How about, how about this? How about is there such thing as, or in the talks of three D printing of food? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Modern Meadow is a company that, to my wait, knowledge, wait, really three D printing of food. Oh, so cool. So that three yeah. D, you, you have to spray out something. So they're spraying out some sort of. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure product. exactly what's in there. It would be. Um, cells, of course, cells that are fed a certain diet, being you know mm-hmm. sugar, peptides, other micro and macronutrients. Um, but yeah, they'd be formed into a layer. But Modern Meadow is taking an approach that um, wouldn't be utilized in the food industry, but in uh, in clothing. They're 3D printing leather, and I think that's really cool. I read about that. Yeah. I thought that was really. Cool. Does that you know you're like let me see your shoes? <laughs> no, 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 no. I knew about that, but just like oh. for food, I was mm-hmm. curious about food because I. Figured there should there could be yeah. some 3D printing on food, but I didn't know. And I'm I'm like that has saved the world. Yeah, well, that and blockchain is kind of like all the talk on the technology of of tomorrow in the food industry. No, they're not going to blockchain food. Oh well, you would hope that they would blockchain food because when with blockchain technology, you'd be able to understand all the parties that your food went through in order mm. to make it to its end destination. So, uh, if anything went wrong, like let's say there's a recall, you have to go back into the the chain and understand mm. where it went wrong. And now you have a party that's liable that mm. otherwise would never take the blame for or have really any accountability over the, the process. Like I heard of a guy who retired from 3M that tracked food and found out that the uh, the hamburger, the, the, the uh, ground beef in Ireland was actually horse from Poland. Right. So you can check the DNA. So that's what the blockchaining thing would be to Keep uh, some sort of a record of things. Yeah, blockchain would be a record of things, and mm. and also um, for the consumer who would be benefiting from blockchain. Um, hopefully, it would mean fewer food recalls, or if there was a recall, faster turnaround on fixing it. It it could also mean that when you scan a QR code that's on a future product, uh, you know where it was grown and where it was manufactured. Well, I wonder what they can do then next to humans so that we wouldn't have to eat. Right. Uh, so you could. Uh, Are they working on that? Does that actually appeal <laughs> I know. to you? Uh, no. I, oh, no. <laughs> for me, cooking and eating is a pleasure. So that's why the nutrition is yeah. like, you know, an afterthought. So intravenous feeding. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. But that's not good either. 
I mean, I haven't done it. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, do, do if people you want do, an answer, there. Do people do that? Is that the next thing? If well, yeah, in hospitals. Oh, what's it called? Yeah. Uh, silent. Oh, Silent. Yeah, okay. Silent. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Silent Green. Well, it's named after Silent Green, but it's this powder, I think it is, that you can mix up three times a day. It's kind of for techno geeks who only want to code and sleep or don't even oh, want to sleep. So but food is like, a bother. It, it's, it's a nutritionally balanced thing. Tastes like mud, apparently. I don't know, but I it's. I don't know what it tastes like. Uh, yeah, it's called. It's Soylent. It's being marketed. I think there's some side effects, but. Uh, I would I would think so. I would hope. I think it's a side right. effect to take it. Yeah, you, not, you wouldn't want to be in a small room. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the story of Soylent uh, a little bit. Oh, and I'm sorry. I, I think that um, there may have been an allergen or an allergic reaction tied to Soylent, which would be, of course, unique to the individual. wouldn't mean that Soylent is a bad product because somebody had an allergic reaction to it. Unless, of course, they didn't put that allergen or disclose one of the top eight on their food packaging. But um, to my understanding, it's a meal replacement. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a meal replacement that's really designed so that all of your nutritional needs are met when you drink this product. And yes, definitely for the individual who's working and uh, doing things that are, they're totally engulfed in it and they just got to get something in their stomach. I was going to say a mad scientist, but but you're a scientist, so I don't want to offend you. <laughs> what? Okay, we're almost out of time. What What's the next good meal you're looking forward to? Start with you, MJ. Well, today's a, a pretty action-packed day for me, so I have three protein bars in my bag. That's not the best meal that I look forward to. This is this is honestly the one I look forward to. Okay, right the now. one we're having now. Yeah, the, the one we're having now. Vegan the Vietnamese. Sperm, tofu and <laughs> rice noodles. Okay. Kim, Kim uh, Lee. I'm looking forward to trying out the new, I'm previewing a new menu for um, D'Amico tonight. So I'm excited to try that. Very cool. Yeah. Good. And Jeremy? Uh, my wife and my niece and I are all going out. It's a special occasion. So we're going to Tenant, which is a little restaurant in South Minneapolis that has, I think it seats about 20 people and the chefs bring the, each course out. It's like five courses, I think. Um, and it's it's really good food. Hmm. Sounds good. Well, I'm headed off to the, we're having our uh, Deconstructing Minnesota Nice event tonight at the Norway House, and they're having Nordic waffles. So we're going to try those. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been fun uh, eating with you, chatting with you, chewing the fat, I guess is what they would call it. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Kim Lee Curry, MJ Kinney, and Jeremy Eggers. I'm Steve LeBeau, and we also had um, Dan Cook as our engineer. This is a co-production with WCCO Radio. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.